Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. A quick note about today's episode. We recorded this in February, at a time when the way that we thought of our place in the world, our relationships to each other, and our responsibility for one another was a little different. Yet, in listening back to this episode during the editing process this week, there were moments that felt relevant even now. Themes related to connecting to others and learning how to listen and learn, for instance. They're just teeny tiny hints of larger and deeper conversations about culture and society waiting to be had, but I hope you'll find them to be meaningful parallels nonetheless. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with violinist and educator Christian Howes, where we talk about what it means to be creative, how to be more creatively expressed and connect with musicians in other genres, ways to organically integrate improvisation skills into your daily practice, and why reaching one's potential as a musician is intertwined with accepting one's own self as a person. So about 25 years ago, I heard Robert Levin, the pianist, playing the Mozart concerto, and he improvised the cadenza. So every time he played it through with us, it was a different cadenza. And that just sort of blew my mind, and I'd never heard anything like that before and never considered anything like that before. But ever since then, I've been vaguely aware that there are folks in the classical music world who've spoken about the importance of improvisation. Um, but I have the sense that maybe in the last five to ten years, the interest in improvisation has become a little bit more prevalent or mainstream, and there might even be a little bit more research interest in this area as well. Right before you came, I was reading this study from 2014 of musicians, which basically found that the musicians who were trained in improv scored higher on certain measures of creativity and originality compared to musicians who were not trained in improv. Seemingly, it was because improv training had what they called this releasing effect on the evaluation system. It just enabled these folks to stop self-evaluating quite as much and generate more creative ideas in the moment, which seems like a really important performance skill and that we don't want to be evaluating ourselves on stage necessarily and inhibiting our ability to play more freely and creatively. But my experience with improv was sort of anxiety-inducing in that it, it sort of freaked me out, the idea of trying to improvise. And so I think some of us might have these preconceived notions of what improvisation means that can be a little bit intimidating and scare us off a bit. And 
make it seem like this kind of training isn't relevant to playing Paganini Caprices or Soba or orchestral excerpts. And so I wasn't exactly sure where to start off the conversation, but you've been teaching and doing workshops for like 20 something years. And a number of the folks who've participated in your workshops come from pretty traditional or high level classical backgrounds. So one thing I'm curious about is, is your sense of what draws some of these classically trained folks to seek out these workshops or what they say they're looking for when they, when they start up with you? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause you know, just yesterday I was teaching here in midtown Manhattan and at the end of our two day, call them creative strings workshops or creative strings boot camps. At the end, I, I asked that question of some of the participants and we had, for example, professional classroom teachers who teach strings in middle school or high school. We also had private studio teacher here in New York who teaches mostly adults actually. And then we had a couple people who were professionals outside of music, but that who want to continue to, to play their violin. And then we had somebody who was literally had a show at Carnegie Hall two nights ago who, who showed up and a graduate of Juilliard who I actually met when I first taught a class for you. So that's the range of people that I get at these classes, which I think is important because it is such a range. And I asked them yesterday, why do you want to do this? One person who had another career, their career is not music. He said, I want to follow through on something in my life. He said, I feel like there's been so many aspects of my life that I haven't followed through on all the time growing up. I want to follow through on music. And with these, these concepts that are going to help me to have a deeper relationship with music and go out and play in a jam session, for example. But then another teacher, a classroom teacher, she said, I want to pass on to my students the things that I did not receive from my teachers. And I'm driven as a pedagogue and pedagogy is like my art. And I feel like I really want to give the students these things. And by the way, you know, these, these things, not just improvisation, but arranging and composition and fluency with harmony and rhythm. And I guess we could say a more multicultural appreciation of, of a range of styles of music. These kinds of things have been suggested as standards within the education system in America for maybe 15 years. So as teachers, we'd like to be giving our kids all these things in addition to what we learned through Suzuki or through high-level classical playing, not just improvisation, but it's a, it's really a, it's a world of skills or a set of skills and perspectives that I'm advocating we give to people. Other people talk about that they want to connect more with music. So in fact, uh, someone who had graduated from Juilliard, very high level player, he said, I realized that what I really want to do with music is I want to connect with people. And he said, I realized that if I go and I see a musician playing in the subway or on the street, I can't connect with that musician. I don't know how to have a collaboration, like a musical collaboration with that musician which that resonates with me because I know that's, that's true. Like as classical musicians, we're, we're just in this kind of bubble and the way we think about music and talk about it and the skills we have, it makes it hard for us to translate with musicians, whether they're in the participatory cultures, which as it's known sometimes, or the jazz studies canon. The way that I kind of wrapped up that conversation we had last night after these two really intense days, what I said that, that I heard from a lot of these people was that people want to have a relationship with music. They want to have a, a better relationship with music somehow. And I feel like 
part of that has to do with our relationships with ourselves. Like a therapist will tell you that your job is to be your own best friend. You have to accept yourself, be aware of yourself, encourage yourself, be a conscience to yourself. Part of our journeys as humans is to be, is to have a relationship with ourselves. And I think that music is a forum and a vehicle for people actually to do that. So it's not just improvisation, but it's a lot of skills and knowledge that we don't get that is holding back people from having that deeper relationship with themselves through music. Can you say more about that, actually? I mean, there are a couple of things that I want to go back to, but I've never thought of music that way. And I wonder if you could say more about it so that I understand a yeah. little bit more clearly where you're coming from with that. Well, there was another woman yesterday who I believe she's a professional teacher, and she said that she felt like she was an introvert and that one time someone had asked her, who, who are you playing for? And she realized that she was playing music for herself, that music, you know, that she was her own audience. So when you talked about that pianist who improvised that uh, cadenza, most classical musicians cannot do that. We just, just can't do it because you just haven't learned the information. And I think that then we, we have this sense of fear. And once we realize how disconnected we are from other musicians, how we can't be a part of it. So people, some people in my workshop were talking about that, how they felt like they couldn't be a part of these other scenarios. I used to feel like when I was a um you must have felt this too. You know how like your parents or like friends would always ask like, play me a song. And then you like, you get your violin out and you're like, okay, what can I play? Well, maybe you're working on like the Sibelius violin concerto or, <laughs> or Vivaldi. Well, if you play it, it doesn't really sound as great as it could without the accompaniment. It's, <laughs> you know, so there's always this sense that we're limited in our ability to communicate the music because we don't really understand the music that fully. So now going back through it, like when I work with my own kids or with my students, I always accompany them when they play on the violin. Like even, I don't even read the piano part. Like I've learned the music, like in the Suzuki books so that I have at least a sense of, okay, here's the chord structure of this song and the chord structure of this song. And there's a sense of empowerment that comes from that. So it's not just about improvisation, it's about just empowering yourself with knowledge. But I think if whether it's like that we feel held back from connecting with other people, or if we feel like we're not a, a complete musician, I think people want to be self-expressed. I think people want to have more variety. They want to connect with different types of musicians, different kinds of people. They want different type of projects. They want to share their own work out there, like make a YouTube video and share it. Like have a spontaneous musical moment with your family or in your community or at your church or like at the Irish pub or whatever. And so then people have a lot of fear and a lot of resistance around it. It's like you kind of like hide from that reality. In fact, one of my mentors, a person who I really, really, really respect a lot and I'm super grateful to. He's a great musician in the classical world. I'm not going to name him. But I asked him, I said, do you think that, uh, do you know that there's a difference between like classical symphonies and like jazz music or other forms of art? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, like, like a Beethoven symphony is like timeless and it's like a work of art. It's going to be remembered forever. And you can't really compare jazz or other kinds of music to it. And I get what he's saying and 
I really love this person. I mean, <laughs> he's, you know, I don't hold it against him or something. But also, I feel like it's a, it's, it's problematic. And in today's world, it's more important than ever to to kind of look at the assumptions we have about different paradigms of thought, different cultural paradigms, and yeah, I mean, people are doing that everywhere, and have been for fifty years. In music, in a way, we're not acknowledging our own faults that way, because to me, it's very parallel. Can you describe how that transition was for you, like going from working on the Sibelius Concerto to then having that learning curve of discovering different languages, essentially, in music and styles, and how to become more comfortable conversing in that sort of way? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, probably one of the first time like when i was about 16 years old there was a, a kid he was like the last chair second violin and and i was the concert master in our high school orchestra but he always came in with these four track um four track tapes that he made at his house where he would write his own music and like he i mean he would play the drums and he would play the bass and he would play the guitar and he would sing and those things are kind of easier to do just at a at a basic level, like at an entry point level, then play the violin, right? Like you can strum a guitar and you can learn a couple chords in a day or two. And so, so he was really creative and then everybody was hovering around him, like, you know, and I was jealous of all the attention he got. And I thought like, well, people obviously don't care about my Paganini, you know, or whatever that I'm working on, you know? And so I had this thought like, well, he's a creative person and I'm not. And I'm pretty sure that most classical musicians have that thought. I'd be, if I had to put odds on it, I would think that you had that thought. In fact, you even kind of implied it with what you said earlier about feeling like, you know, about improvisation or even theory just. And so then that was, that was like one experience where it made me think really hard about that. And I thought, I want to, I want to push back on that idea and see if I can prove it wrong. Like maybe I am creative. Maybe I do have something that is uniquely me that I can offer. Which goes back to that first thing we were talking about, which maybe I didn't answer as well as I could have, but this idea about that we want to have a relationship with ourselves. We want to feel proud of ourselves. I mean, Noah, you know, I knew you since you were like three years old and you were like, the way I always felt about you is that you were just this incredible, incredible prodigy. I won competitions and like concert master chairs and all these things, but you were like just another level. And so... I feel like I can relate to, you know, to this idea that like each one of us wants to feel like we have something special to offer. And I think it's really hard to do that in classical music. I mean, playing in an orchestra is awesome and playing in string quartets is awesome. But sometimes you can feel that sense that if I'm not going to be Itzhak Perlman or Hilary Hahn or Josh Bell, it can be really deflating. I, I think if you let it, I don't, I don't think I was ever deflated by that. Like I never felt like, sad that I couldn't play the violin as well as you or whatever, you know, but, but I can understand how people would feel that. And, um, if you're creating your own thing, then that's not relevant anymore. Like that kid was the last chair, second violin, but he had something special that everybody was more interested in than my Paganini. And so, you know, this idea that we want to have a sense of pride in ourselves and acceptance of ourselves and appreciation of ourselves. I feel that now as a violinist about myself. And it's not even that like everybody's going to understand all the kinds of music that I make or like all the music that I make, but I like it. <laughs> and like maybe somebody likes it. 
And it's like, that is worth something. So what I'm talking about, like kind of having a relationship with yourself through what you do, I think it's so important. I mean, does that shed a little more light on it? It kind of makes me think of how I think there's some folks who will take a look at the Strauss Sonata and find their own way of expressing what they think the Strauss Sonata means or what it says to them. And, and that's incredibly gratifying and satisfying to be able to hear yourself do that and put your own stamp on it to make it your own as teachers are always mm -hmm. telling us to do. And for others that might be satisfying, but there's a whole other aspect of satisfaction that comes from, like you said, creating something that didn't exist before. That's a different type of satisfaction that they may also be looking for. It sounds like mm -hmm. in some of the people that you come across. And I, I mentioned the Strauss Sonata because in most cases with the repertoire, either I, you know, really loved a piece or I didn't understand it and I just didn't play it. But the first time I ever came across feeling like, huh, I don't know what the point of me playing this piece is, is I was listening to, I think it was a recording of uh, Kyoko Takizawa playing the Strauss Sonata. And, and sure, there are little things here and there that I might have done differently. But I was like, huh, this is about as good as the Strauss Sonata <laughs> could sound or needs to sound. Like, I don't know what I can add to it. And I was like, a, you know, a little bit deflated. I still wanted to learn it because it was a great piece to, to learn and to play. But I was like, huh, I don't know why anyone would ever have to hear me play this. And I was like, huh, I guess I need to find something else to play. Yeah. And well, I'm, and I'm glad you said that too, because I, I just want to stress that, yeah, I, I think that you can get all of that joy and, and depth from playing classical music for sure. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that you can't. I think having a sustainable relationship with music is also an important thing for both for teachers and for players. Because when you think about after high school, what happens for most people, like if they don't become a professional, are they going to be a part of a community orchestra? Not everybody's going to be like Condoleezza Rice, who famously set aside Sundays for like string quartet chamber music with her friends, which wouldn't it be nice if we all did that or if we all had time to do that or whatever. I think this idea of having a, a sustainable more organic relationship with music. I'm, I'm really big on the idea of like that music should just be shared everywhere, like in every situation. It's like, you, you know, you sing your, your kids a song to moan to bed, or uh, sometimes I'll get up my guitar and I'll, and I'll like play a song, you know, when my kids are going to bed, but it's like, you get together with family. People should play music on the street. People should play music in church. People play music like everywhere because music is really humanizing whatever environment music is happening in, if it's a hospital or if it's a war or it's like a street corner or like a living room, whatever environment, like it's humanizing that environment somehow. I think it makes people get more in touch with just their humanity somehow. So people are going to feel more trust. People are going to feel more free. People are going to feel more love when there's music around, I would argue. And so we should play more music. <laughs> and that's one of the ways that I feel like classical music kind of, um, it doesn't encourage that because it's like, no, you have to have a concert hall and you need to have music stands and air conditioning and a conductor. It's like a lot of things that get in the way. Even like I said earlier, like you need an accompanist to play a song. So that's another powerful motivation, I think, why we can... <laughs> Wait, we can we can learn classical music and you know and also so it's 
It's like more sustainable relationship with music, like sharing more music in the world, but also making deeper connections with other musicians, being able to connect with other musicians. And also, yeah, creative self-expression is a part of that. But I don't think you have to necessarily be a genius composer or even be able to do your own cadenza on a Mozart concerto to be more creatively expressed. It's like if you go down and there's some, some cats like on the street that are playing music, let's say they have a drum circle and you just want to join that drum circle and you might play the drums. Like all you do is find the beat and then you just within that, there's a structure that includes a lot of freedom for you to be expressive. But you could do the same thing if you had a violin or a cello, if you kind of opened yourself up to what it would take to do that. Makes me think a little bit what it might be to to join a pickup basketball game or a pickup soccer game or something. You just you have a, a common set of skills or understandings and you just kind of join in and have because you were talking about setting up a performance and what you describe now sounds more like I heard someone on your website use the word jam. And I think that's what makes chair music so much fun that you're, yeah, there's music in front of you, but within that there's a lot of improvisational stuff happening and spontaneity and engaging with one another in a particular way. And, and when chair music groups are fun, it's because there is that sense that you're all kind of on the same page and it's less fun when people are trying to go in different directions or feels that way. I'm tempted to ask about this idea of deepening one's relationship with music or deepening your relationship with other people through having an expanded shared language of skills, like with jamming and whatever the technical term for that might be. But maybe I wonder if the, the more important question is, is where to start? I mean, especially if this is something that feels completely foreign, is it something that one can start getting comfortable with in little tiny baby steps, maybe in the context of working on orchestral excerpts or etudes or whatever it is that, that one might have in front of them at the moment. I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and most of the time when people think about starting to improvise, they think about trying to improvise over a song and that's hard depending on the song because they probably don't know the, the chords for the song. There's some aspect of like playing over that song or, in the example you gave, improvising a cadenza that goes to the Mozart piano concerto. Most classical musicians are not ready to do that. And what they should do if they want to do that type of thing, which is to create like an improvisation that conforms tonally and rhythmically to like the structure of, you know, a piece of music, they should study that. But in the meantime, there are structures over which you would be very comfortable and you could be improvising both tonal and non-tonal and also both with pulse and without pulse. So what I like to help people do is to think about musical structure in a more broken down way and then give them exercises that they can start being really creative in that broken down way. An important part of this, by the way, is that you want to have really, really clear limits because when you limit your choices, it makes it easier to make a choice. So if I said, for example, okay, no, I want you to improvise, <clears throat> but you can only play the note A or the note D. In fact, you can only play an open A or a open D and you're going to have to be in this rhythm like this. 
so. Right, that would be pretty easy for you to do. In fact, it'd be kind of like boring, which is exactly what I want you to feel because that's the opposite of feeling like nervous. <laughs> right, which I'm guessing, or I think, I think you would agree with as a performance psychologist that being bored is the opposite of being nervous. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. So, we want to make it like a task like this and give you these creative exercises so you can start getting used to it. So you do the same thing, like, like I could change it up and say like, well, let's do it with triplets. So I'm giving you structures that you understand, which is like these two notes and this rhythm. As long as you understand those things, then you could do it. Now, I wouldn't give that to a three-year-old because a three-year-old doesn't understand triplets and they don't know what an A or a D is. And so in the same way, I wouldn't ask you to improvise over a Mozart piano concerto because presumably you don't know the piece in that way. Like you don't understand it in that way. You don't understand the, the chord progression and how to create a melodic language that, that fits over that or a harmonic language that fits over that. Even if you understand it on paper, that's different than being able to apply it on your instrument. So I could go on and on about this, but basically I'm going to try to give you structures that you can use and give you really clear limits so that you can practice improvising. Like those, those examples I just sang, those are examples of me improvising. And you could do that as long as you have those clear structural limits and prompts. And as long as you're willing to go through those exercises without judging yourself and just for the sake of the process. Because my friend told me, if you want to be a composer, compose 100 pieces of music and then throw them all away and then you'll be a composer. And I feel like the same is true of an improviser. Like Do 100 improvisations without judging them. Be willing to throw them all away. And then you'll be ready to start you know, evaluating imposing some kind of value system on, on the things you're doing. The idea in the back of my mind when I'm giving you these kinds of prompts, I'll give you another, I'll give you another example. Let's say that we're going to use the notes A and D again, but this time we're going to say you can only do phrases that have five notes or less. So A, D, D, D. So that's one. Then you might do another one. D D A A D D A D D D D That was six actually, I broke my rule. <laughs> so the idea behind it is that when you're creating something, you have basically infinite choices. You're drawing from like an infinite universe. Because creating something is just making a choice, it's just choosing. So what I want to do is break down those infinite choices into more manageable buckets, basically like a drop-down menu. So it's like if you go to Walmart and you go shopping or the grocery store and you ask somebody you know in your family, hey, do you want anything from the store? They're going to be like, they can't think of it. But if you give them those buckets, it makes it easier. Like, well, do you need something from produce? Do we need household appliances? Do you need meat? Do you need drinks? It makes it easier. So it's the same thing here. So I'm going to look for those drop-down menus that make it easier. So what I came up with was, for the first one is emotions. The second one is techniques. The third one is musical elements. And the fourth one is everything else, anything other than A, B, and C. So if I said to you, play something, think about the idea of happy. Think about the idea of sad. Think about the idea of confusion, anger. That's something that anybody can relate to. 
And then you could use that as a reference point or as a lifting off point for your improvisation or your composition. It doesn't have to be literally sad or happy. It can't be anyway, but it's just like, it's a lifting point. It's, it's a direction. It gives you that focus. Same thing with techniques. It'd be like anything having to do with right hand technique or left hand technique. <coughs> so I might say, I want you to use bouncing bow strokes. Improvise using bouncing bow strokes. Um, and then for musical elements, it could be like, you know, use these notes, use these rhythmic parameters, use this meter or phrasing or style or density or form, all these kinds of things. As you can see, just those three buckets, feelings, techniques, and musical elements, you can do a lot with that. Then the other category is just sort of like for whatever else. You know, sometimes I have people play triangles, circles, and squares, or colors, or shapes, or like accompany a movie, or a dance, or like think of a memory, or like whatever. It's just kind of like you can use whatever you want to inspire or ref or as a reference point for a creative choice or creative action. But most of us suffer from writer's block, which is just the paralysis of not knowing where to start. And this is how you fix that because. You say, oh, you you can't think of where to start? Okay, well, here, pick an emotion, pick a technique, and pick a musical element. There, now go. It's very clear. You know, I, I can get anybody to, to not be paralyzed because I'll just give them something to do. The other problem is, is being in a rut, or what I call being in a rut, which is when if someone's creative, they just do the same two or three things every all the time. But again, this fixes that. If someone comes up to me and they play and they're like, I can't stop doing the same things that I always do. I say, oh, I'll fix it for you. Okay, just play only triple stops now. <laughs> Chances are they weren't playing triple stops. That's not one of the three things they were doing. So, or I'll say, play in fifth position or just pit, put your bow down and use pizzicato. As soon as you start drawing from those these structural parameters and constraints, it makes it really easy to be creative. And... What's really important, though, is is that what I'm advising you to do, engaging in these creative process exercises, is still not playing over top of like a structure, like a piece of music or something that you can't do. The same reason I wouldn't say like, and I'm making an assumption here, Noah, but I wouldn't ask you to play over like a fast 13-8 groove because I'm assuming you probably haven't studied playing over 13-8 like a ton. I haven't. So I also would be uncomfortable with playing over 13, eight, but it's like, if it was four, four, I would feel comfortable with that. So I might, and I would assume you would too. So I would say, Hey, play over this, you know, this, this, uh, two and three and four and play over that clave, that rhythmic framework. This is what people get wrong all the time. And I think you probably read that book, which is called slow thinking, fast thinking. But the idea is that when we're learning stuff, we're thinking slow. When we're an expert on something, we're thinking fast. Or anything that's instinctive, we're thinking fast. And so the big mistake that people make is they, they try to be creative over stuff that they haven't learned yet. Because you can't be creative and thinking slow at the same time. So that that's the biggest thing. And then what happens is I always get this objections from people. They're like, okay, so you showed me how to be creative, but, but this doesn't really count, right? Cause it's atonal or it's not like, I just want to be able to play over that hip hop tune or like that rock tune. I'm like, no, this does count. That's the point you're missing. You're missing the point. It really does count. It's going to take a while for you to be able to play over that rock tune. 
It might take you a couple of years to feel that kind of, you know, but you can study that. I can show you how to study that. Like there's lots of things you can do to be able to wail over a rock tune or like come up with a cool solo or whatever. But you need to, you just need to study that. In the meantime, there's all these things you can dial in in these creative exercises, which, by the way, are going to also apply when you're playing over that rock tune. Because it's like once you have the harmonic information and the rhythmic information, and the, you sort of learn more about rock music and the culture of rock music and what's expected. And you know, <laughs> once you get to that point, you're still going to have to bring all these other things into it when you play your solo. It's like, how are you structuring that solo? You know, how are you structuring it rhythmically? How are you structuring it in terms of the arc, in terms of the emotions, in terms of the techniques, in terms of the variety? Because those are all the things that are going to make it powerful at the end of the day. Sorry, that was a very long ramble, Noah. I'm sorry about that. I don't know if I even answered your original question. No, that's good. I imagine people get impatient, right? I mean, I think you sort of alluded to that. Like, what do you, like, how do they, and I know this is not, the right question. Cause once we get fixated on a timeline, it changes things, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> Do you remember how long the process was for you to get to a point of feeling comfortable being able to do those things that might've been, it's sort of like playing tennis, right? Like you see these people on TV, it's like, Oh, I want to be able to play like that guy. Mm. And not, we know that we'll never get to that level exactly, but it's like, I still want to be able to hit a slice backhand or like a top spin one handed back, you know, like it's mm. aspirational. And, how long did it take you to get to a point where you felt like, oh, this is cool. I'm doing something that's meaningful to me. Yeah, it depends, though, on the situation. Because, you know, there are things that are shared in common, but there are also things that are just different. So it's like, maybe the difference with tennis, I'm not sure I'm trying to think of the analogy, but it's like, you might spend some time and play in a rock band, and then, like, that's really you learn a lot from that and you feel really comfortable, but then all of a sudden you're like, and now I want to go do play like um, music in Brazil, let's say, you know, and go to the carnival and play it and then be like, wait a second, I have to start over again now, <laughs> you know? So I think that if you want to join, there's many, these kind of communities where people play music in different kind of ways. And there's, there's overlap and there's, there's also differences. Um, I think when you go and first enter this kind of community, what's really important is to be, um, is to be cool. And I use this uh, analogy. I don't know if people like it or not, but I use this analogy of like, if I were to go to a bridal shower, I've never been to a bridal shower. Okay. So if I were to walk into a bridal shower and then try to like run the show, like that would not be cool. Cause like, Presumably, there's going to be a lot of people at the bridal shower that have been to bridal showers before. Like, they have a way of doing things at bridal showers. So the best way for me to be cool is to, like, show up and ask questions or maybe just not say anything. <laughs> or just say, like, please let me know if I can help, you know, or, you know, or is this okay if I do this? Or is it okay if I do that? And it's like having that type of attitude is so important when you're, st when you're like a newbie, I guess, in a, in a new community. And what we tend to do as classical musicians is we put so much, we, we like invest so much of our self-esteem in this idea that we're experts at music. And so then when we go into another community, on one hand for people, it can be shocking because like literally someone's playing at Carnegie Hall, but then they're feeling like they're going to break down. If I ask them to like, hey, just improvise a couple notes in this scale. 
they're like freaking out so hard because it's something they can't do. And I, you would be able to explain that better than I can, but I feel like it's because they can't bear to have this dent in their armor around being an absolute perfect musician. And so they just can't, it feels like a contradiction to them and they just can't deal with it. So that's the reason that a lot of times if a classical musician goes to play with a street musician, for example, it's not even going to occur to them that they should be actually deferring to the street musician in terms of the language, in terms of the conventions, in terms of what's right and wrong, when to play, when not to play, how loud to play, how to talk about the music, everything. If you want to have a good interaction with that street musician, you need to be respectful of that street musician. Again, the analogy of the uh, the bridal shower. I don't want to go into the bridal shower trying to run things or pretend as if I'm an expert at bridal showers. The thing is for me to be deferential and kind of humble and try to be helpful, which is different than being apologizing for myself. So I don't need to apologize for myself. I can just be like, Hey, I'm excited to be here. I've never been in a bridal shower before. Please let me know. I can help. And I was like, that's the attitude you need to have. If you want to go play with any community of musicians. I think it's, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but I think it's much easier said than done. And it makes me think of the uh, the research on growth versus fixed mindsets, you know, Carol Dweck's work and how there's a tendency for us to want to prove ourselves. And and I think that's probably what you're speaking to. I mean, even for me, my own experience with improv was, you know, when I was a little kid, I, I don't know if this was a Suzuki thing or if my mom just encouraged me to do this or maybe some of the teachers we had at Capitol did this. But, but I remember just randomly playing stuff that I made up off the top of my head and recording it. And that was sort of like a regular activity that I, that I did. And somehow over the years I stopped doing it at some point. And then when I came back to it, I was probably in my early twenties. It was like post Juilliard, post-grad school. And I kind of on a whim joined this broke orchestra at Indiana university. And the expectation was that I improvise little ornamentations and that seems like well how hard can that be right like just a different few wiggles of a <laughs> right. trill or an ornament right, in right. random places i had a really hard time with that like i don't even know how to explain why i had such a hard time with that but you know mm. i was playing for this really well-known respected musician who had been i think the concert master at the met years before and i wanted him to think that i was good and he didn't know who i was or where i came from or anything and i wasn't able to demonstrate that i was any good because <laughs> i was just locked up by this and so certainly frustrating and all this to say i think yeah it's certainly easier said than done well, that's interesting you're saying because we have this need to prove ourselves yeah i mean again that goes back to what we were talking about earlier i feel like with like who you're proving yourself to, you know, I think we want to prove ourselves to ourselves, right? Like for, for healthy psychology, it, it takes me back to like, if I'm trying to prove myself to everybody else, it means I don't have a good relationship with myself. I don't, I don't like accept myself for who I am. And I feel, you know, or like if I really am a friend to myself, then I, I wouldn't feel that I needed to prove anything to anybody else which goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I actually want to jump back to the kind of practical applied stuff that you were explaining a little bit ago, you know, whether it's starting off with a blank piece of paper, essentially improvising these little tiny five or six note figures. And then you talked about at some point after throwing away the first hundred or so evaluating, 
to what I'm assuming you mean recording yourself so you can hear what's actually happening, but, but evaluate how, like how, how would we know to evaluate something that we've just created? Yeah. Well, you can evaluate the same ways that you would as a classical musician, which is like, how's my intonation? How's my articulation? How's my, this quality of my sound? So all those things can still apply if you want, but you're going to develop a hierarchy of what's important to you. And so that's, and that's one of the things that, for example, like John Coltrane, maybe his tone quality maybe wasn't as important to him as like the angularity of the lines and the, the swing and the soulfulness of the, like the ideas, for example, which is a lot of why a lot of times you have classical musicians that might feel that like a jazz musician doesn't pay attention to their sound. But they do. It's just, but they create a hierarchy of what's more important to them. So, like, if you're create, if like, if I'm creating something, I'm thinking about the idea I'm creating. It's almost just as important as the way I perform the idea. In classical music, we're it's it's a hundred percent how we perform the idea. It's not we're not creating an idea. I think that you can develop those values. And part of that is you making a choice about what those values are. So again, I feel like as classical musicians, we probably already have some biases around what we think are important, like our tone, like our vibrato and things like that. But when you start to create ideas, you're going to develop values around it. So is it balanced? For example, is there a balance between space and sound? And even if you set out to, to create something that is like 80% sound versus 20% space. And then you create something else that has 20% sound versus 80% space. If you play around with that for a while, then over time you might get a sense of what feels balanced to you and what you tend to like to do. And then when you're improvising, that becomes one of the criteria that you apply to, to that piece when you evaluate it. Is it too dense for my taste or is it too sparse for my taste, for example. Rhythmic intention. I think a huge one for me from, again, from like working with Bobby Floyd, for example, who every note he plays is really a hundred percent in the pocket, as they say, like rhythmically specific, developing that value as an improviser being like, I'm going to have a rhythmic melody, melodic rhythm, I guess. (laughs) I'm going to have a clear melodic rhythm and then just focusing on that and then listening back and judging for the melodic rhythm. Tension and release is something that we're going to monitor in classical music, but also we can monitor in improvised music. Did I create, did I release the same amount of tension that I created, for example, which like Martin Thacker, great conductor, he wrote a book on that talked about we always want to create a certain amount of tension and release the same amount of tension and that's how we create this kind of indivisible artistic experience for the listener so i think there's a lot of ways that you can you can evaluate the work you can evaluate it in terms of uh does it uh is there variety are you using the same ideas Are there some ideas that feel more interesting to you and others that feel less interesting? And then a big one for me is just to subtract the things that you don't like, just to notice like the bad habits and take those away. Cause actually I feel like you can, you can do so much more by just, by just doing that. It's just like taking away the unforced errors. So it's like, 
Okay, I like this. Although I didn't need to play that note. Okay, why did I do that? Oh, okay, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna do that next time. How much of this would one do every day? And again, that's not maybe the best question because then we get locked into to formulas of time. But well, one thing I will say about that that I think is an opportunity that's missed is that you can consolidate this creative process with your technical practice. So, for example, if you practice an hour and a half a day and the first 30 minutes of that is just like slow technical practice, I would recommend that you combine the slow technical practice with creative practice. There's no reason not to. You can also combine it with other things like like internalizing harmony, like practice the key of F-sharp major, internalizing patterns in F-sharp major, while noticing things about your posture, adjusting things in your left hand, adjusting things in your right hand. But you just consolidate those things. And I've, you know, probably get in trouble with it, but I, I this kind of tongue-in-cheek thing I say to people is like, you know, you can throw away your flesh and your Galamian books because, and sometimes people get mad about me saying that, but but there's, there's a point, which is that people do these warm-ups. I know there's benefits from warm-ups. There's benefits from Galamian and flesh, mostly fingerings. If you're improvising, you're going to have a completely different relationship with the violin. You know, you're going to have other problems. You're going to create your own problems, and you have to solve them. Solve them. Like, Galamian and Flesh has a very limited set of problems that you have to solve. But if you're improvising, you've got limitless problems that you can create and solve. And I'd wonder what a performance psychologist would say about the, the efficacy of, of when a student creates their own problems and solves them versus solves somebody else's problems that are given to them. Can you give me an example of what sort of problem that might be? Yeah, well, like, let's say that I play B-flat on the G-string, and I need to go up to E-flat on the E-string. Well, that's not in Galamian or Flesh. I just created a new problem. I mean, that's a shift that's not in the repertoire anywhere, let's say. Maybe it is, but, I mean, you know, you get my point. I mean, it's like, you know, or a certain triple stop or a certain double stop or a certain string crossing. Like, when I'm improvising, I'm constantly creating my own problems. They're not in a book. It's like, you know, it's like a move in the left hand or a move, to, move in the right hand. I wonder if you can say also a little bit more about this idea. And, and I think you might already be speaking to it, but combining the creative with technical practice, like how, yeah, how exactly would you, you combine some of the things you described earlier in terms of being more improvisational with the technical? So, for example, you know, if you practice Carl Flesch, it's like, right it's like these kind of things that you're supposed to work on well michael davis who was our teacher we both shared two teachers jenny christopherson and michael davis i don't know if michael told you this or if you remember this but he always told me scale practice is a means to an end it's like you only have five or six objectives you're trying to play in tune you're trying to shift you're trying to come up with make a sound you're trying to play vibrato, right? Isn't that the thing? And he's like, and so this this scale practice is just a means for you to work on those things. So when you work on the scale, I want you to think about your shift. I want you to think about your intonation and solve those problems. So the thing is, you could do that with improvisation. You could still have the focus be on your intonation or your smooth bow or whatever, but you'd just be improvising instead of playing that same exercise out of flesh. So I could be... I can improvise that, but while I'm thinking about shifting and, or, my, or my right arm or whatever. 
makes me think of a couple things. One, I stumbled across this video of a uh, violinist, Pamela Frank, talking about scale practice. And, and if I understood her correctly, she was advocating for playing scales much more musically than mm-hmm. I think we tend to. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, right. the idea being, when you're on stage, you want to be playing musically, and that's <laughs> a slightly different skill set <laughs> in terms of the motor skills involved than playing the scale cleanly but mm. in a very dry, kind of generic, musically devoid kind of way. Yeah. And that seems obvious in hindsight, but it right. never would have occurred to me to right. play a scale musically or try to. Right. Um, also makes me wonder with the improv applied to technical practice. So I was talking with this physical therapist who was describing how, you know, and my wife talks about this too when she's sight reading or learning new rap that she's sore afterwards. Because when we're sight reading, we tend to be more tight physically, more tense. Mm. And I wonder, does that, I mean, have you noticed that coming up when people are improvising and having to be mindful of making sure the tension doesn't creep in? Probably for me, it's the opposite. I mean, probably anybody could say that that they, and in fact, I remember, you know, at different times in my life, I would get nervous in a classical situation, but then if I was in a non-classical situation, I wouldn't be nervous. And uh, probably kind of how I, I still am <laughs> today. <laughs> so I think I think for a lot of people, it would be that way. Now, if you're just starting to improvise and you're freaking out about it, then okay, that's different. But once you get into a space of of improvising, I think it can really open you up like like yoga, really. Like improvisation is... To me, it feels like meditative. It really does. And the focus of that meditation, when you're improvising, it could be very kind of about emotions, like therapeutic way, but it could also be very like technical practice way, meditation. Like, you know, I'm going I'm to improvise, but the, the only reason I'm improvising right now is so I can focus on my vibrato. Not so that I can make something that somebody says that was good or not. It's like, I'm just practicing, but I'm improvising versus I'm practicing. I'm playing one long tone for five minutes and see what opens up in my feelings. Just a, it's a pure meditation or maybe it's just some long tones, but I'm really just trying to tap into like feelings just like you would if you were holding a downward dog or whatever. Right. And, you know, vinyasa or whatever. This, this is really important. I think. And I'm curious what you think about this, Noah, because why do people play music? <laughs> Emmanuel Axe said during a master class with <laughs> Yo-Yo Ma, he said, young kids, they start to play music to make their parents and their teachers happy. And we hope that later on that they're going to fall in love with it, which I think is what happened for you and me probably. So many of us continue to play music because we want to please our parents or our teachers, the internalized parent, the internalized teacher. And I feel like that's got to be analogous for our lives, like how we go through our life. Like we're judging ourselves, like we're yelling at ourselves, you know. Or So when you're improvising, it's partly getting through and saying like, whatever I play right now is okay. And it's not always the reason for playing to make something that's good or that's going to impress someone. It's like just to hear the sound that I make right now and be okay with whatever sound that is. Like as the yoga teacher will say, like, you know, wherever you are right now is where you need to be. Just notice it and observe it and accept it. And I feel like there's, it's so important 
for us to be able to play a note on a violin and just notice it and let it be what it is. Because there's beauty in that note. And the teachers out there will tell you, I always ask the teachers this. I'm like, so you've got 10 students in your Suzuki studio. So when you, those students come to you, do you, do you, do you hear beauty in every one of those kids? And, and usually they'll be like, of course. Like the teachers, I feel like they kind of see perfection in their students. They see how each one of their students has this really beautiful thing to give. And so, of course, they want them to get their third finger down and the fourth measure of, you know, of the Vivaldi or whatever. But they recognize this special thing that that kid has when they play the violin. And I think that's part of being a Suzuki teacher is having the ability to have so much love and give so much to these kids. But oftentimes those same teachers, I'll, I'll tell them, I'll say like, you need to bring that and see that in yourself. Like whatever you play on the instrument, you need to hear that and be able to recognize that same beauty in you. Cause I hear that you need to hear it in yourself. And a lot of these teachers are the ones that they're breaking down just as much as the high level performers going to Carnegie hall and their own resistance around just choosing a note and playing that note is powerful. It's not just about making a cadenza on a Mozart. It's not just about playing jazz. It's not about one thing. That's why I think it's about our relationship with ourselves. ultimately. I do remember it took me a few months of being prodded and encouraged to do these spontaneous ornamentations in Baroque music. But I do remember leaving my teacher's studio that day. You know, it's been a couple of decades. I don't remember if it was feeling empowered or, but it was a, it was a very positive feeling. I think mm. it probably was some combination of feeling empowered and satisfied and excited and proud of myself for and this, this part. I do think I remember it, it was a feeling of letting go. Mm. That was really nice. It wasn't a sense of how I had thrown a ball perfectly inside this hole from a distance. It was more, mm. I just let go and something cool happened mm. and and it felt good. And, and so that, I mean, that was my experience, but I wonder if a good place to wrap up would be to ask you if there's like a story that comes to mind or a particular student or musician or, or something that someone said that kind of speaks to what you just described about how people change or how it could change your experience with making music. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about how, what it means for me, because I told you the story about how when I was 16 and, that kid, I was really jealous of that kid that was, that was creative. You know, I probably could have said the same thing about like you, you know, who was not for your creativity, but for your virtuosity. Probably there was maybe a little bit of jealousy of, you know, Kageyama's incredible virtuosity, you know? Um, And so by embracing this path, I feel like I don't have to suffer from those, either of those things. Cause I feel like I have something that's me that I do on the creative side, which I can be just feel satisfied with. When you're a creative artist, I feel like truly there is no competition. When you're playing classical music, there is a competition. I mean, there's chairs. <laughs> you're like first chair, like you get the job or you don't get the job. As a creative artist, I feel like there's Joni Mitchell and Aretha Franklin. We couldn't choose between the two of them. They're both amazing and they're different. And so there's room for you and I both to be in the same room and celebrate each other and celebrate ourselves. So that's what I would say is that for me, 
that's been the big thing is is to feel a sense of pride and enjoyment in what in what I do. And I do see that from a lot of teachers and a lot of um, players as well from doing this work, you know, working with me in various ways or through our, the various curriculum that we do at Creative Strings from our podcast and our summer camps and our blogs and videos and visiting the schools and stuff. So that's why it's uh, the mission. I'm just going to stay on it, my friend. <laughs> Alrighty. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Noah. Chris stuck around after the interview and recorded a few examples of what self-designed improvisation exercises might look like. To download the audio of these exercises, read the full transcript, listen to Chris play more music like the version of This Little Light of Mine with pianist Bobby Floyd that you're listening to right now, and watch videos on a few additional topics that came up in conversation, like Robert Levin's Mozart improvisations, please visit bulletproofmusician.com blog.